The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And, you know, during this kind of process of interrogation, the perpetrator asked for a moment alone with Berman. And Berman agreed. And so they go to this you know, they're left alone, and the Nazi starts asking for forgiveness. He says, please help me, please do whatever you can to get me out. And Berman says, I will do whatever I can, so long as you are willing to confess to your crimes from A to Z, to say everything that you did and when and to whom. And he assents, and it's this weird moment Uh, They later, you know, share the same cigarette and they even embrace. And it's this really, really jarring account. But then later, Berman writes a letter detailing what happened. And in it, he reflects. He says, you know, even if he were to confess from A to Z, I would never know when it is Z. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 2nd, 2023. Last December, a German court convicted a 97-year-old former Nazi camp secretary of complicity in the murder of more than 10,000 people in what the media called, once again, the last Nazi trial. After almost eight decades, the Holocaust is still being litigated, remembered, and all too often misremembered. I sat down with Linda Kinsler, author of the book Come to This Court and Cry, How the Holocaust Ends, and Sam Moyne, a professor of both history and law at Yale University, to discuss Linda's book, We talked about Linda's stunning discovery in Latvia that led her to tell this story, the limits of law in holding perpetrators of mass murder accountable, and whether the antonym of forgetting is not remembering, but justice. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 2nd. Come to this court and cry, how the Holocaust ends, with Linda Kinsler and Sam Moyne. Now, Linda, I want to start with you. This is a remarkable book, uh, one that's intricately layered. It's part investigative journalism, part work of history, part memoir, part detective story, though, as you are careful to mention, it's not a spy novel, so to speak. Uh, It zigzags between many locales from Montevideo to Jerusalem to Sao Paulo to Riga, of course, which is kind of feel like its own character in the story. To catch our uh, listeners up who may not have read the book yet, I'd love to start where the book starts with the discovery that you made. And it was as you're probably about to say, and sort of an unwelcome and jarring discovery. Uh, so if you, if you don't mind starting there and just kind of sketching out a few of the, the basic plot lines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's kind of a, you know, incredible place to start, but also admittedly a very confusing one. So 
basically what happened was I was in Riga in 2015 and then later in 2016 as well, kind of poking around. And I found myself in a bookstore. And in that bookstore, I found this historical fiction spy novel with the title in Latvian of You Will Never Kill Him. And the first kind of main title character, the man whose name shows up on the very first page, uh, was the first name and patronymic of my paternal grandfather, who was Latvian and I, who disappeared after World War II very abruptly before my father was even born while my grandmother was pregnant. And all I knew about this figure was that there was this mystery surrounding him. We knew very, very few facts of his life. We did know, however, that he was a member of what is called the Aris Commando, which was the most brutal killing commando uh, of the Holocaust in Latvia. It was a subsidiary unit of the SD. And that after the war, he had worked for the KGB once the Soviets took over once more. And then in 1949, he abruptly disappeared. So that's what I knew. And then I found this novel, which had a complete alternative history of my grandfather that framed him as a kind of traitor, spy, turncoat, but not in the way that I you know, already kind of suspected. His story was braided uh, between chapters about this man named Herbert Sukers, who I had heard of, who was known as, you know, at first the Latvian Lindbergh and then later the Butcher of Riga. He was a man who was a very famous aviator in the interwar period. And then during World War II, he too joined the RA's commando and became a perpetrator. But he, unlike my grandfather, escaped to South America, didn't at any point hide his identity, thinking that he had no reason to. And in 1965, after Mossad kidnapped Adolf Eichmann, they sent one of the same agents back to South America to Sao Paulo, and then later to Uruguay to assassinate Sukers. And so that's the kind of central mystery that I knew about. And then all of a sudden I came across this novel in which those two stories were intertwined and related. And not only that, but it's not like I just kind of accidentally tripped across this novel. A prosecutor in Latvia who was investigating the guilt or innocence of Sukers, if he could be said to have committed any crimes during World War II, he told me that I should go looking for this novel because it was 90% fact. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like at every turn, you attempt to keep yourself out of the narrative and, and you know, events happen otherwise that just keeps pulling you back in. But Sam, I want to open it up to you. You know, the story itself, as Linda just laid out, is is gripping enough. But one thing I love about the book is it gets into so many other themes like the limits of law and justice, memorialization and memory, uh, which overlaps with a lot of Linda's other work as well. But I'm curious what drew you to the book, perhaps Linda's work in general, and then you know where it might overlap with your own. Well, so I had the privilege of, of engaging Linda at a launch event at Yale Law School. And, and it, it was just a, an extraordinary treat for me. I hadn't heard of the book at that point, And I sat down and read it, and it really startled me, not only because of the intrinsic interests of, of the story um, or stories, as Linda's laid it out, but 
also because, you know, Linda and I share in part a similar background. We're both interested in the law and memory, but we also have spent part of our lives in Berkeley, California, and tried to read um, some of the same bodies of thought that are not typical to read in, in law schools or in the general public. And what amazed me is that Linda so successfully for a, a broad audience integrated s- some really complex questions about the uses of the law in responding to you know atrocity and crime in the past and when i picked up the book i didn't expect to you know f- read it in one sitting but i couldn't put it down and we had an absolutely amazing conversation just about some of the the stories which i think we need to dwell on and also kind of what are what are the ways we then think about those stories and and the kind of future of of holocaust memory Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to amend my uh, itinerary of, of locations to include Berkeley um, in the book. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think, you know, as as Sam touched on, one thing that, you know, I, I think is really valuable about the book is it questions uh, or interrogates rather just sort of commonly held legal concepts of what's the purpose of a trial, how our legal systems are set up in certain ways and not able to address, you know, something like genocide or mass murder. So I think maybe um, a good place to start is with some of these, I guess, legal inventions like the crime complex, for example. Linda, can you speak to to the crime complex, that sort of, I guess, legal innovation uh, and where it intersects with the stories? Yeah, well, I think, you know, to both of your points, for me, from the beginning, the reason why I thought that I had to write this book, um, despite many, you know, abundant and ongoing reasons not to, was precisely because it opened up all these questions for me about the relationship between law and history and the different forms of judgment that each of them produce and their, you know, respective and mutual relationships to fiction. Um, Because there's so much interesting legal theory about how, for instance, James Boyd White writes about how you know, the legal verdict uh, is in many ways a fiction because nothing is ever final before it is aired in the community. And it is ultimately the community that has a final say, uh, which I thought was really beautiful. And because I encountered this case rather naively, I would say, and I quickly realized that it was imbricated in all of these fictions and conspiracies and ambiguities that resulted from these kinds of recursive regime changes that Latvia had experienced, but, you know, also similarly for all of Eastern Europe, uh, that it kind of produced these very conflicting and often uncertain ideas of what it would mean to, A, define who was a perpetrator, identify a perpetrator, and then hold them to account. So I will say just kind of like as a backdrop that the I, you know, when I first started reporting, I I found that there were these, you know, a few news clippings here and there in Latvian about this ongoing criminal investigation, which is akin to a pretrial investigation, in which 
the question of whether this man, Herbert Zuckers, could have been said to have killed any Jews during the Holocaust was at issue. And in other systems in Germany, for instance, the very fact of his belonging to the killing unit, the RS Commando, would have been enough to prove his guilt beyond dispute. And so, but that was not the case in Latvia, and it's not the case in many countries that have adopted a different kind of approach to prosecutions of this kind. And so the crime complex, which you brought up, Tyler, was this innovation by a German prosecutor in the 1950s. He came up with it named Erwin Schule, and he was the one who first determined at this moment when you know a lot of former Nazis had yet to be brought to a court or even had yet to be identified. He was the one who said, you know, we have their organizational structures. We know which units were deployed where. And anyone who is within this kind of network, organizational network, is guilty by virtue of only their participation alone, no matter if it's, you know, if they were just kind of operating the switchboards or, you know, the cooks or something like that. And so that was really his contribution to the to the legal system that allowed Germany to depart from what was previously a very kind of narrow approach um, and which obviously is still used today in some of these cases that are often called the last Nazi trials. Yeah, I want to make sure we also touch on, so you talk through several innovations that are you know aim to achieve justice, like the crime complex. Um, and we also can get into some of the trade-offs there, which you so well explained. But there were also innovations that, I guess, led to the undoing of justice, for example, uh, especially in, in Soviet rehabilitation. So can you talk through the case, you know, follow the thread after uh, Zucker's assassination of efforts by the family to rehabilitate his image, and then how, you know, the, the Soviet rehabilitation system in general has been perhaps abused in some ways, or had been rather? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And Truthfully, the thread actually starts much earlier than that, right after the war, when you had organizations of Jewish refugees, many of them in Germany, you know, getting together and coming up with a plan to collect testimonies as fast as they could, while it was still fresh in their minds to kind of identify people who had been in the Riga ghetto, say, or had, you know, been imprisoned or in the ghettos and other places to get them to make their legal affidavits and send them to, they had these kind of very formal legal committees that were petitioning uh, the Western powers to pursue trials. And Sukers's case was one of those, as was Victor Aris, who was the leader of the killing unit for whom it is named. And so it's kind of amazing to read the archives of these Jewish organizations because they were really, they were moving really quickly. They were trying to collect as much as they could and they were going so far as to deploy, you know, they had, they had friends and relatives in South America because they had also fled to Brazil and to Argentina, often on the same ships as the perpetrators themselves, as is the case in one of the characters I talk about in the book. And they carried out surveillance in South America. So the photograph that's on the front of the British edition of my book is was taken by a Jewish survivor who recognized Sukers riding his boat in Brazil. 
And he was one of the men who was supposed to go on trial in London. The British were in the process of putting together what was called the Riga ghetto trial. And they were kind of thinking about how they would pursue such a thing. But then basically what happens is it gets, the case gets transferred to the West German government first who take people into custody. And then it kind of unravels from there because the system, which we now think of that has been built up over the you know last many decades did not yet exist. exist. Erwin Schule had not yet come up with the idea of the crime complex, so it kind of dissolved. Zuckers and Arais were both both escaped. Arais kind of more dramatically, he took on another identity and he was only found much, much later in his life. So yeah, I guess the <laughs> to answer your question is because these prosecutions kind of really, really fail to take off, the Israeli government took it into their own hands. And one of the mysteries of the book and one of the kind of open questions is why an assassination in this case? Why not a kidnapping and trial as with Eichmann? When Mossad kind of, they spent a long, long time getting their agents familiar with Zuckers. They had a relationship. It was a kind of many months long ordeal. But when the the time came to kill him, they kind of, confronted him in this abandoned vacation rental right off the coast of Montevideo in this little hamlet called Shangri-La. And they, you know, say that they meant to court-martial him before they murdered him. But according to the memoir of the lead Mossad assassin, he, Zuckers, pulled out a gun. And so the minute he did that, they just killed him immediately. And on his body... They left an excerpt from Sir Hartley Shawcross, the lead British prosecutor at Nuremberg's concluding speech uh, at the Nuremberg Tribunal, which, you know, kind of conjured up the image of all of humanity standing before the judges. And he said, imagine that humanity was standing here before you and that they came to this court and cried, these are our laws, let them prevail. And so that to me was just a (laughs) kind of an arresting fact and one that is not consistent across the many later accounts of this assassination, but which does prove to be true in the archival documents. And so that is where the title of the book comes from. Sam, I want to go back to you and get some of your reactions as you read the book and and as you spoke with Linda at Yale Law School. You know, as as Linda writes uh, about Nuremberg, uh, that it gave us the concept of human rights, but there was also kind of a a negative flip side to that, that, you know, it wasn't what was achieved at Nuremberg was insufficient. And same thing with the crime complex. And, and, you know, nothing really, I think, could be sufficient to, to get back what was lost. So I'm curious, you know, your reactions, what questions it raised for you, Sam, uh, especially as it overlapped, maybe with some of your previous work around human rights as a legal concept? It's, it's a great question. And, and, you know, Linda's book really led me to you know, rethink a lot about the history of of post war justice. I mean, right now, actually, a lot of people are interested in going back to Nuremberg and remembering that it was mainly an aggression trial, uh, not an atrocity trial, and that's so relevant in the course of the current Ukraine war. But it also did uh, initiate this very slow moving attempt in different countries at different times to bring people to justice because of 
the atrocity crimes they've committed. And famously, that kind of gets new energy in internationally in the 1990s with various ad hoc tribunals and then the International uh, Criminal Court. But what, what's interesting, I think, in, in this book is that you know, from the beginning, as you suggest, Tyler, it, it was not obvious that, let's say, law was the way to go with respect to any crimes, aggression or atrocity crimes. Famously, Winston Churchill, during the course of World War II, you know, proposed just shooting people. And, you know, famous thinkers like Hannah Arendt said very clearly that even when they were spending their time covering trials like the Eichmann trial, as she famously did, that there are crimes beyond the capacity of, of law to really reckon with them. And in, in a certain way, law could provide a false sense of, in a sense, recovery. And, and yet what, what really I found, you know, most arresting in Linda's book is that she also, I mean, she she registers those qualms, but she also gives a lot of credit to to law, or at least she she poses the question whether law may be the best thing we have. To me, this came out most clearly in her discussion in the book of the contrast between history and law, because you might think historians who are are spending, you know, decades gathering evidence, telling stories, trying to change collective narratives might have the best way of at least getting, you know, ordinary people to take past crime seriously. But Linda at least considers the reverse possibility and she cites someone who says that no matter how good your historical narrative of the past is, it's never enough to foreclose the possibility of denial. And she she continues that law might be able to entrench certain truths better than anything else. And I'm just not sure that's true, but it it, it was an incredibly interesting um, hypothesis that Linda lays down and, and I'm still thinking about it. So yeah. I don't know if, if Linda wants to talk about you know, <laughs> why she's so high on the law. <laughs> I don't know if I would say that I'm high on it. I actually feel very kind of that line, which is from Mark Nachanian, who is this incredible scholar and writes about the Armenian genocide and kind of, how that particular historical event has been sequentially subjected to negation. But first I want to just say about your earlier point, Sam, you know, about how, uh, what Arendt writes in her trial report, she has these kind of two moments of like hallucination or kind of imagination, whatever you want to call it. One of them is in which she imagines herself in the role of judge and kind of corrects the verdict and says it wasn't enough. But the other one is where she, writes, you know, why didn't they just kill him? Why didn't they, why did they bother with this kidnapping and trial? You know, it would have been so much more expedient to just leave him on the streets of Buenos Aires. Perhaps it would have like achieved a different kind of justice, maybe a vengeance. And 
to me, I was thinking about the Zucker's case, which was conducted by, you know, the same organization. And that did kind of live out that counterfactual for us. So we don't really need to wonder anymore. You know, this is what happens when you have an assassination, at least in, I don't know. I mean, I think the fact that the Zucker's case in particular has been subjected to kind of unending discussion and revision and legal re- legal revisitation, I think is important that it, he has become this figure who has, you know, become a martyr, perhaps predictably. What was your, the second part of your question, which was also very fascinating? It's, it, it's really just um, whether we should think that law can establish truths beyond contestation, because I would have said, look, there's an inevitable politics to history and to memory and to law, you know, especially when law is a lot of the time in these courtroom proceedings around atrocity, both gathering historical information and in a sense doing its own history and affecting public memory. And so we don't we don't know in advance, you know, what law can do. It serves a lot of different forces and of course fame you know in your book the ongoing latvian exoneration of zuckers is a legal proceeding mm-hmm. uh, and so it seems as if we should treat laws just like everything else riven with you know interest and passion and p- different people's understanding of what justice requires and it's it's not like it's bad but it's not better at establishing you know, truth beyond the possibility of denial. Right, right. I guess the reason that I thought so much with Natanian and that line, which he says is, you know, only law can posit the fact. And I think it, it's, that line is tinged with so much bitterness, at least for me, because he is speaking in the kind of context of the French ban on Holocaust denialism. And it's not without trepidation that he says that. And I don't even think that he thinks it's a good thing necessarily, but it does speak to this kind of impulse that I think we see all around us in many contexts. That's like this desire to simply have the law come down on one side or the other and to consider this historical question or contemporary question kind of resolved, you know? So it's as if, if the verdict were to say, you know, no, he didn't, pull the trigger or yes, he did pull the trigger. I think there is this moment that we're in right now where, at least in the case I was looking at, there was already some kind of judicial reckoning. And then it was kind of historically dealt with. But now law has come back to it and started revising those theorizations again. And so it was so interesting to me to see how almost epistemologically you know, now that the source material of all of these previous judgments has in some ways corroded because of the passing of time, the law then approaches these kinds of already complex questions with a new and I think, you know, quite dangerous power. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile 
is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, I think I, I just wanted to say as a global comment, one thing I loved about the book is that it can be unsatisfying at times. And I mean that in the best way possible <laughs> in that you don't go for uh, a satisfying, you know, absolute answer for the reader because that's not based in reality. And I think one of the best uh, examples is, of this is, you know, the gray areas between justice and vengeance. One one thing came to mind earlier when we were talking about trials is I, I think you wrote a bit about the the earliest uh, Soviet trials of, of Nazi persecutors. And uh, you called it, I think, a kind of justice, which I really liked as a phrase. But just to pull on the the thread that I think Sam started about, you know, what becomes fact evidence, you know, in in law, uh, I, w- I want to get at some of the differences of of evidence and, and sort of the premium law places on, say, official documents versus witness testimony. Uh, I think one of the more bitter parts of the book was this chasm you mentioned between a race's uh, warrant and his conviction and, and the difference in the numbers there. So can you you know, kind of talk through some of these more unsatisfying parts of the book, especially with regard to the law, even even if you are high on the law, as, as Sam accused <laughs> you of. Yeah, I mean, I think that is that kind of um, <laughs> brutal numerical gap that you are pointing to is kind of one of the things that I really set out to understand. Again, perhaps naively, you know, not approaching this as a lawyer, but there, you know, there is this line, you know, this famous lawyer who says, you know, you don't need to prove a thousand murders occurred when you can prove a hundred. And, you know, any lawyer will know this, but it becomes very different contextually when you perhaps are working with cases that have already been worked over so much historically, where we know, for instance, that a thousand people died. And yet somehow, because of the strictures of whatever criminal code you may be working with, only some fraction of those can be legally recognizable or could be said to exist within the eyes of the law. So for me, that's a, you know, it's a question that I don't think we can just pass over as scholars when we're thinking about these cases. And I think this is also one of the issues that will come up, obviously, in the tribunals to come or, you know, the existing domestic prosecutions over having to do with Ukraine right now, where we have these kinds of allegations of mass casualties and perhaps only a fraction of those will be able to be proved. But I have to say that, you know, one of the things that the prosecutor said about this case almost in passing was about the, you know, one of the reasons that he cannot be found guilty is because there's no corpus delicti here. There's no body of the crime. And, you know, it's a very, you know, well-known legal rule. Basically, it says that you cannot commit legal suicide. You cannot be prosecuted for a crime which didn't occur. Meaning that, you know, if there's no dead body, you can't say some, you know, there was a murder here. And I found myself really caught by that particular reasoning because 
when you're talking about the Holocaust, so much of the evidence, so much of the bodies were deliberately erased and destroyed to preclude exactly this, to preclude legal proceedings, to just, you know, to preclude accountability. And it's this kind of thing that we see again and again and again, and to invoke Nichani. And once again, he says, you know, in the case of the Armenian genocide, it's not only that the killing fields were destroyed. It's also that later the records of the attempts to prosecute the perpetrators for that were also destroyed. And so when he says, you know, you have to kind of continue testifying, you have to prove your own death if you are in the position of the survivor, that's what he means, I think. It's this kind of lament, you know, that yes, you know, all of these are extremely lacking, you know, none of this is going to be sufficient and yet, right? And it's like kind of that and yet that we're kind of stuck in perpetually, I think. Yeah. And the concept that you brought up of corpus delicti also reminds me of another, I think, long, long standing legal concept you talk about, which I'm not going to go for the Latin, I'll go for the English translation <laughs> of a death extinguishes every crime, which you, you quote someone as, as, as calling essentially a legal fiction, you know, something that's aspirationally true, but is not quite. So I'm actually curious, you know, what other legal fictions came up for you, Linda, in reporting, or maybe even for you, Sam, in, in reading? <laughs> oh, I mean, I felt like I was just lost in a sea of legal fictions the kind of the whole time, um, in all senses of the word, you know, in like fiction about law, for instance, fictions that were generated prior to law, for instance, the, one of the earliest accounts of the Eichmann kidnapping is that it was, you know, three friends from the kibbutz happened to be on vacation in South America and came across Eichmann or the, whether it's the kind of memoir by the lead assassin of Zucker's, but also, you know, and primarily in the sense that you are talking about the kind of Lon Fuller sense of the legal fiction is that, you know, first of all, of course, we don't try people after their death. Second of all, that you know, this will be some kind of justice, I think, in this case. And that perhaps one of those fictions is that, you know, that law can posit the fact that law can have a kind of assertion about what did or didn't happen here. You know, to to kind of expand on on Tyler's point, you know, and, and to go back to our our discussion of kind of how law can do different things. I mean, to me, you know, aside from the the stories we've talked about so far on on the podcast really the what happens to memory after 1989 in a place like latvia really stands out as one of the things i will i will continue thinking about from the book and because because throughout eastern europe after 1989 of course the soviets in the soviet era various things happened in the memory of of the war and in legal responses to it but after 1989, you know, post-communist states had to take on board Western Holocaust memory. And that led to a lot of new examination of crimes during World War II towards Jews in particular, um, not humanity in general. And we know so much about that. But w- what we're seeing now is also an age of backlash, of nationalist backlash at the focus on crimes against Jews in particular perpetrated, not just by Nazis coming in from outside, but by local participants like potentially 
your own relative, but certainly Herbert Sucher's. Mm -hmm. And what's so amazing about the book is it dramatizes how you get caught up with this ongoing investigation in an attempt to, if you will, whitewash Latvia's past. And this is super relevant in our day because, you know, with the Ukraine war, uh, we're focusing less on how nationalist memory in Eastern Europe is affecting the kind of how World War II is remembered. And I, I worry about that, frankly. I get that we need to cultivate the best that we, we can as outsiders in the way people remember their own victimhood. But when we see events like you portray, current Latvian memory reconfiguring itself in a kind of nationalist direction, exonerating Latvians from for their crimes. I, I, I wonder if we, you know, one value of your book is getting us to look very critically at the way that law serves all comers. And now it's East European nationalists kind of in the ascendant trying to overcome this this original legacy after 1989 of taking crimes against the Jews more seriously than before. Yeah, no, I think that's a very, you know, important point and honestly one of the more disturbing things about that I found out while I was working on this is, you know, simply the fact that as long as these cases continue to be subject to litigation, as long as a, you bring them to court and the prosecutor must examine them in some way, then you are also introducing the possibility that perpetrators can be pardoned and that they can be rehabilitated. And so what I continue to think about is if we are in this moment when that has been long anticipated and has been the source of so much anxiety when the events of World War II will pass from memory into history, do we also perhaps want to revisit how the law might regard them? Um, and I think this case that I examined in Latvia, obviously <laughs> I looked at it for many reasons, but there are other cases of this variety in Poland, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners have uh, heard about and read about where it is, you know, a criminal offense in some cases just to research the Holocaust um, and that historians who have pointed to the complicity of Poles themselves have been forced to kind of <laughs> defend themselves legally, you know, and elsewhere throughout the region, it's absolutely not unheard of. And I think what I have observed in Ukraine is that, and for me, what was really kind of one of the many, many heartbreaking dimensions of the current phase of the war is that, you know, because Ukraine wasn't included in that first wave of EU accession, because they weren't receiving those kinds of guidance uh, and emissaries from on high, that's like, this is how you commemorate, this is how you build a memorial, this is where they should go, you know, everyone should come every year to these commemorations, that they were, you know, in some ways behind in that historical trajectory. And that only over the past, I would say, maybe like five, 10 years, have you really seen a concerted effort to create national narratives about the war that embrace the kind of really complex texture of perpetration and victimhood of bystanders, uh, kind of all of these different experiences. 
only like really recently were those starting to emerge in a public way that it wasn't kind of inflected by a very kind of vengeful nationalist rhetoric. And, you know, that's also for me, and this kinds of kind of gets to the previous lawfare podcast I did about how this kind of language about denazification was able to come back. And I think some for us in the States originally, when we heard that, I think a lot of people paused because it was such a confusing bit of rhetoric to come out. And I think the, that pause <laughs> gives us a lot to think about, about how we kind of think of the imbrication of memory and the legacy of Nuremberg right now. Can I just follow up? Because, you know, you, you talked earlier about the meaning of the title of the book. I think this is a great time to hear what you mean by the subtitle, which is how <laughs> the Holocaust ends, because it it's related to this notion that we're passing from memory to history. And I get that. At the same time, there have been histories told and we will have collective memory alongside history being rewritten, you know, as long into the future as we can foresee. Right. And so in the face of this nationalist renegotiation of of the past that we're seeing, you know, your book is pushing back in a way as I see it. And that's for the sake of collective memory and and better histories than this legal process right now is producing in my view. And I just wonder if, you know, it's a great title, but the risk is that it presents this melodramatic sense that there's like a before and after, whereas in fact, we're constantly in, you know, in a sense, a struggle over how to remember and how to tell history. Uh, and we always will be. Right, right. Yeah, no, and I I certainly see how the subtitle reads in that way, and I feel kind of, you know, admittedly conflicted about it. I think, and I write in the prologue that I meant it as kind of a provocation or a question um, or a warning, and certainly not a prescription, but rather this question about endings, you know, in general, and I got, I got so interested in this question of what is an ending? What, what endings are we satisfied by? Where do we say that legal judgment has reached an end uh, or historical judgment? Uh, so much so, honestly, I kept thinking about it that my very, very kind and brilliant editor had to start going through the book and taking references to that out. But, you know, for me, I became really interested in this question of like, okay, how long are we going to allow these cases which fuel nationalist sentiment, which provoke all these these very narrow understandings of a complex moment in history and can be quite dangerous. How long are we going to allow these to proceed? And I guess I was just observing at this very fragile moment that if we aren't careful, we will end up with kind of almost a forensic obsession with what we can know about this moment that has passed into history, you know, and I think there are different truths that you can choose, you know, you can go for narrative truth, you can go for forensic truth. And I guess I was seeing at this precise moment when the holders of the memory, the survivors themselves, the witnesses themselves were passing away and ceasing 
to be able to tell it to us firsthand. I don't think it's an accident that this historical moment is coming just as we have this increasing obsession, I would say, with finding out, you know, for sure who pulled the trigger at what point or where were they standing or who betrayed whom. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening have also heard about the controversy over the former FBI agent who just concluded his so-called cold case to find out who betrayed Anne Frank. So those were the kinds of things I was thinking about when I proposed the subtitle. The French title is the op- the antonym of forgetting, which I also adore and I think could work equally well and perhaps better than this one. Yeah, Sam, I'm so glad you brought up you know the concept of ending and the, and the subtitle because I think that was one of the other wonderfully unsatisfying parts of the book for me. And especially, Linda, if you could um, sketch out one scene really comes to mind for me of a survivor actually having the chance to interrogate a perpetrator. I believe the survivor's surname is Berman. And, you know, he's sort of, I think this is where you brought in the concept of, you know, A to Z and, and you know, when do you know when you've reached Z? And, you know, the bit about how the survivor wanted to sort of forgive in a way, um, the perpetrator, but he could never really know when he had confessed all of his sins or sort of, I guess, you know, the bottom of the evil. So could you, could you bring that into the conversation a bit? Yeah. And no, I appreciate you bringing that up because that really is where I (laughs) focused about this when I was thinking about this idea of endings. And it was this amazing document that I found in the Wiener Library in London, which was an account from a survivor of the Riga ghetto named Joseph Berman, who was part of one of these Jewish organizations that after the war were really avidly pushing for prosecutions that were doing everything they could to make the British Riga ghetto trial happen. And then after that, to make the West German prosecutors continue with the case. And so basically what happened was Berman was asked to go to Hamburg, to go to West Germany, to confront one of the SS men who had served in the Riga ghetto himself, merely to identify him. And once he was there and he, you know, saw this man face to face, the perpetrator recognized him in turn and they were brought to an interrogation room with the lawyer and a policeman or with a a guard. And, you know, during this kind of process of interrogation, the perpetrator asked for a moment alone with Berman and Berman agreed. And so they go to this you know, they're left alone. And the Nazi starts asking for forgiveness. He says, please help me. Please do whatever you can to get me out. And Berman says, I will do whatever I can so long as you are willing to confess to your crimes from A to Z, to say everything that you did and when and to whom. And he assents and it's this weird moment uh they later you know share the same cigarette and they even embrace and it's this really really jarring account but then later berman writes a letter detailing what happened and in it he reflects he says you know even if he were to confess from a to z i would never know when it is z there's no way he could know because the perpetrator has a monopoly of this knowledge of his own crimes and so that's one of the, you know, difficulties I think that we still that we are still confronting, and that is just simply in the kind of that nature of the crime. Speaking of this, not knowing the whole time I was, or I guess more so at the end, I was curious, you know, how you 
reckon with this not knowing or never knowing, especially after all of these years of effort and excavating uh, the past, you know, much of which you are personally tied to. I liked, you know, kind of what you call the story in, in Jewish Currents recently of, of an unsolvable Rubik's Cube. So I'm curious how you reckon with that and how you how that kind of sits with you, that that lack of ending or lack of completeness. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to be quite frank, the criminal investigation into Tsukers is still ongoing. So all along the way, I had a hope that if I were to write this book, then maybe somehow it would change the proceeding itself. But of course, the Jewish community of Riga, who, you know, have become active participants in the case, submitting as much evidence as they can, which part of which I detail in the book, are still pushing for that to happen. I don't know. I think, you know, I I guess uh, the irony of this is that I realized by the time that I got to the end that, of course, there's never ending. There's no finality. This The history itself kind of defies and precludes us from ever arriving at such a thing. And the best example I can give of this is, you know, after an excerpt of the book ran in The Guardian alongside some photographs, of my grandfather, we received a message from a man whose grandfather had also served in the same closed Soviet city where my grandfather supposedly died. And this man said, you know, my grandfather told the story of coming across a man lying on the beach who had committed suicide and he had a gun next to him and he had a note in his pocket that said, I'm sorry, commandant, I couldn't complete this mission. (laughs) And You know, this just comes to me, you know, in the most mundane of ways, you know, in email or on Facebook Messenger or what have you. And so I'm kind of left with that. You know, I don't know how to verify it. It's another one of the stories that I, you know, am adding to the pile. Yeah, throughout the book, I imagined you sort of walking around the Berkeley campus, just getting like an earth shattering WhatsApp message out of the blue. And I'm not (laughs) sure how you were able to just, you know, go about your day with years of that. As we near the end, I want to ask one more question, sort of widening the scope to some of your other work. You know, you mentioned our conversation about Babin Yar, you know, a few months ago. You know, what draws you to this question of memorialization and memory, uh, some of these misadventures in memory, um, the memory wars, as you as you chronicled a bit in your book? Yeah, what draws you to this, I think, pretty clear theme in a lot of your work? Yeah, I mean, I think memorials are one of the places in which we see history made concrete, or at least like we confront our own desire to put something in stone and have it be definitive, right? It isn't a kind of ending in and of itself. There's a wonderful new book by the Berkeley art historian, Andrew Schenken, called The Everyday Life of Memorials. It's a really, really fabulous piece of scholarship. And in it, he says, you know, there is this tendency to view the memorial and mistake it for history itself. Um, and I think there's always this tension, no matter where you go, about what you are seeing when you see a memorial. Are you seeing the history? Are you seeing the people who built it? Are you seeing the historical context of which it was built? But I also think it's one of the ways in which we see people interacting with the past, you know, in such kind of amazingly mundane ways sometimes. And I think that can tell us a lot about not only our present moment, but how we contextualize ourselves with regard to the past, as I think many of our listeners will know better than I. Well, I could 
probably talk about this book forever. And in fact, I probably will keep talking about it with friends and colleagues after we wrap this up. But I think that's a good place to leave it. Linda and Sam, I really want to thank you for taking the time. Thank you both so much. Thanks for including me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.